6. Ezra chapter 6. And this morning we want to look at a reason to rejoice. A reason to rejoice. Ask a question to begin with here. What is the difference between fun and joy? What is the difference between fun and joy? I think a great many people really don't know the difference. Sometimes they use, boy, that was, that was fun or that was a joy uh, to experience that. Or, but uh, let me just uh, suggest this difference. Fun is spending time. Uh, teens would say hanging out. But spending time with friends, sharing uh, good food, hearty laughter, and that's not just for young people, that's for the older folks as well. You know, having fun, just a, well, that was a fun time we had together, just being together and, and laughing, and, and I call that fun. Or fun is going to an amusement park. Or to ball games, or summer camp, or spending a morning on the lake and hauling in a big catch, right? Well, that's fun. Um, for me, it's a lovely walk in the most beautiful place in most communities, hitting a little white ball until it falls into a hole in the ground. Wow, that's fun. <laughs> Some of you think, well, it'd be more fun to watch paint dry but some of us enjoy this, and it's fun for us. Fun is seeing your kids or your grandkids laugh until they squeal with delight. Well, it's fun to see your kids all happy. Now, it's no fun when they're sick and they're, you know, but when they're laughing and having a good time, that's fun. So what is joy? Well, joy is doing what you were created to do by the one who created you. It's not always fun. In fact, there are times when it's difficult and it's painful. It's even heartbreaking. But at the end of it all, joy is not dependent on circumstances of life, but at the approval of God. Now, joy for you may be serving or teaching or blank, whatever you put in there. You fill in the blank because what's joy for you may be different for me. You see, it's a great joy for me to be able to stand up before you and preach the Word of God. But let me tell you, it's not always fun. It's a joy, but it's not always fun. And see, when you do what you were created to do and you do it with passion and tenacity, there's a profound sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. And sometimes it's messy. Oftentimes it's challenging. But along the way, and certainly at the end, you'll hear the master say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, I wonder this morning, how high is the pursuit of joy on your priority list? Now, I didn't say fun. A lot of times we have a high priority of, boy, let's have a fun time. Let's do this and that's that. It's going to be fun. But how high is the priority of joy on your list? 
Do you view it as something that is only nice to pursue, but it's not really necessary? You know, many Christians view the Christian life primarily in terms of duty and obedience, and those are not minor themes in the Bible, but how many Christians view the pursuit of joy and gladness and delight in God as a prime duty? All too often we view God as a stern cosmic killjoy who doesn't want anyone to get carried away with having a good time. The Puritans were often falsely accused of being against joy and pleasure. Someone ridiculed a Puritan as a person who suffers from any, uh, from an overwhelming dread that somewhere, sometime, somehow, someone might be enjoying themselves. That's a false view. I certainly don't support or approve all of the teachings of the Puritans. They believe they, you should try to stay in the Anglican church and try to purify it from within. Uh, I think of one Puritan minister by the name of Roger Williams who read his Bible carefully and he believed he should separate from the false teaching of the Anglican church. And guess what? He became a Baptist. But it has been said that it was the Puritans who said this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I can't disagree with that. We could also say God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. And so if glorifying God is our highest aim, then finding joy and satisfaction in God must be our deliberate, lifelong, consuming pursuit. To the degree that we fall short of the fullness of joy in God, we fail to glorify Him as He deserves. And the joy that God imparts to His people is the theme of Ezra chapter 6. Now the chapter begins with the outcome in question uh, the work on rebuilding the temple had stopped for 16 years due to opposition from the people in the land. It was a, someone has said, and I'm, it was uh, Ken Marsky who called me this week, and uh, he said, I listened to your, your message, and uh, it was so happened that they had heard a message there in Bibleville by a guest speaker on Haggai. And he called the 16 year break a 16-year coffee break. But then under the ministries of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the work then assumed or resumed. But they barely got started again when Tatnai, the governor of the province that included uh, Israel, comforted the Jews with whether they had proper permission to rebuild the temple. They we're confronted with this, with this uh, uh, challenge there. Do you have permission to rebuild? He told him, uh, they told him about Cyrus's decree, and because God's eye was upon them, as we talked about last week, Tatnai permitted them to continue construction until word got back from the current king, Darius, as to what he was supposed to do. We saw that back in chapter 5. But in chapter 6, Darius makes a search, and he eventually finds the decree of Cyrus in the government archives, and he respects the decree, and he sends back a ruling that not only the, should the work go on, but also it ought to uh, be supported by government funds. And so the temple was completed. 
And the Lord's people gathered to celebrate the dedication of this temple with joy, as we saw there in our reading this morning, verse 16. It says there, And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. And this was followed by a celebration of the Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, with joy. Ezra explains the source of that joy. He says in verse 22, For the Lord had made them joyful, and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And so we learn that God's aim is to give us great joy in him and his sovereign ways. Joy and gladness in the Lord are not minor themes in the Bible. Moses told Israel that they should seek the Lord at the place that he would choose, and there they shall rejoice in all that ye put your hand unto, ye and your households wherein the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 7. Later in Deuteronomy, he warned them, Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness, And with gladness of heart, for the abundance of all things, therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee. We look at the book of Psalms. The Psalms are full of joy and gladness. The psalmist talks about, unto God my exceeding joy. Psalm 43 and verse 4. In Psalm 5 and verse 11, But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Psalm 16:11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 32, 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. In Psalm 100, verse 1 and 2, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Over the New Testament in Luke chapter 10, Verse 20, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto the babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. And then again, we find that joy continues on through the the, the whole Bible. In Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He told his disciples that he had spoken to them so that their joy may be in them, and, uh, or his joy may be in them, and their joy may be full. John fifteen eleven, And the reason they were to ask in his name and receive was that their joy would be full. John sixteen twenty four. In Matthew twenty five twenty one, he promised that on judgment day, those who serve him faithfully will be told, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. 
Paul says in Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. He told the Corinthians and also the Philippians that he was working for them for their joy. He listed joy as the second fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. And then the Apostle Peter reported how those who believe in Jesus, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And to the suffering recipients of his letter, Peter wrote, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that in his glory shall be revealed ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. And then John in Revelation pictures the saints rejoicing throughout eternity. Hallelujah! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage lamb of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. Now I've only touched the surface of this theme in scripture. But I think this should be enough to prove that joy in the Lord is not an optional or secondary matter for a believer. Rather it's the very essence of the Christian faith. It is, in one aspect, the end of God's dealings, and we should be glad in Him. Now, our text here this morning in Ezra 6 unfolds five aspects of joy that God wants us to have as His people. Number one, the joy of His providential care. God's remarkable providential care for His people underlies the entire account here. Tatnai had sent a letter to Darius expecting the king to send back orders to shut down this work at once. And God's providence is seen in the very fact that the king finding the decree of Cyrus from some 18 years before, and they did not find it at Babylon, but they found it in a fortress, Cyrus' summer residence, And God's providential care is further seen in that Darius did not say, I don't care what the predecessor said. I'm commanding you to stop this rebellious work at once. He didn't say that. Rather, he not only told Tatnai to keep away from the project in verse 6 here, but also to fund the project out of his tax revenues in verses 8 and 9. And to add some motivation, he decreed that anyone who violated his edict should be impaled on a timber drawn from his house, and the house should be made a heap of rubble. Whew, that's serious stuff. And he added the wish that God, who was has caused his name to dwell there, shall overthrow any king or people who attempted to destroy the house of God. We see that in verses 11 and 12. You see, God's providential care is also uh, told to us in a mention that the Bible was com- uh, the building was completed according to God's command. It says there in verse 14, you'll find it there, according to the commandment of God of Israel, according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Pergia. Now why does Ezra mention Artaxerxes? Uh, he had reigned 50 years after the completion of the temple. Well, Probably he did it for political protocol. In that Artaxerxes was the reigning king when Ezra wrote. And since he had been kind enough to issue a decree for the building of Jerusalem's walls, Ezra wanted to give him some credit in case he read this account. God's providential working is clearly stated in verse 22. 
where it states that God, the Lord God had turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto the Jews. It's unusual to refer to the Persian king as the king of Assyria. Perhaps Ezra did this to remind Israel that Assyria, Israel's former enemy, had been conquered by the Persians, whose king was friendly toward Israel. And behind all these remarkable events was God's mighty hand. Turning the king's heart like the channels of water wherever he wishes, as it tells us in Proverbs 21. I wonder, do you see this morning and rejoice in God's providential care for you in every little detail of your life as well as in the major things that happen to you? Jesus told us that not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father knowing it, and he even knows the number of hairs on your head, that is, if you have any hair. Therefore, we should not fear but we should trust in God. And since we are living stones with which Jesus is now building his temple, the church, we can be assured that he orders all things for our ultimate good. He will not discard or forget his chosen people. The joy of his providential care. He cares for you this morning. And he's taking care of you, whether you realize it or not. That should be a reason to rejoice. But secondly, there's a joy of his provision. Tatnai and his colleagues did not diligently carry out the king's decree to fund the rebuilding of the temple out of the tax revenues because they thought uh, it was a great idea. They did it with all diligence because they didn't care for the alternative. Remember what I said the alternative was? To be impaled on a timber from their houses? Now, that's not a, not a very pleasant thing to, to think about. But God used the decree of a pagan king to provide the materials for the temple and even the animals and other items for the sacrifices. King Darius was trying to cover all his bases by having the local people pray to their gods on behalf of him and his sons. But God used the king's religious superstitions to provide for his people. You know, the Lord not does not usually use pagan governments as the main source of material support for his people, but however he provides, well, he provides for us sometimes through tax breaks we receive from our government as a charitable nonprofit organization, and through the generous giving of the Lord's people. God is the one who provides for his saints as we wait upon him through faith and prayer. And when we see God's provision, we should be filled with joy. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we see Paul brimming over with joy in the Lord at the generous gift of the Macedonians for their poor Christian brethren in Jerusalem. He points out how our generous giving not only meets the needs of others, it also overflows through many thanksgivings to God, resulting in God being glorified. And we should rejoice daily, not only in how God provides for the work of this church, but also how he provides for our personal needs. There was a songwriter by the name of Wendell Loveless. He told of a 64-year-old woman 
Boy, that's old. I read that story and I thought, man, she's an old woman. Guess what? I'm married to an old woman. And in a week or so, she's going to be married to an old man. 64 years old? Wow, that's, that's ancient. Not anymore. But here this 64-year-old year, uh, year old woman had been confined to her bed for almost 16 years. And she was in constant pain and she was unable to move her limbs. And yet she was one of the most thankful people that Wendell Loveless had ever met. She rejoiced that God had left her a great blessing, the use of her right thumb. Her other hand was stiff and completely useless, and with a two-pronged fork fastened to a stick, she could put on her glasses, she could feed herself, she could sip her tea through a tube and turn the pages of a large Bible. And although it took great effort, everything she did was with the use of just one thumb. She told a visitor, I have so much to be thankful for. And when asked why, she replied, now that my sins are forgiven, I can lie back and daily drink in the great love of Jesus, my Savior. And asking if at times she became despondent, she replied, I'm perfectly content to lie here as long as the Lord keeps me in this world, and I'm also ready to leave whenever he calls me. You see, I think that lady knew the joy of God's provision. Thirdly, God wants us to know the joy of productivity. The joy comes, this joy comes through seeing results in our service to the Lord. Now, this temple was finally finished. It was about 20 years after the foundation had been laid, and just over four years after the rebuilding began again, and after their extended coffee break, that is, under the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. And there are differing views about the dimensions that are given here in chapter 6, verse 3. These dimensions seem to exceed those of Solomon's temple, which was 20 cubits wide and 60 cubits long and 30 cubits high. But if this temple temple was bigger, it's hard to explain the disappointment of the old timers when the foundation was laid back in chapter 3. And since the length is not stated here, some think that the original text had been corrupted, but others suggested that these greater dimensions were outside the limits that Cyrus could support. But the actual building was much smaller, leading to the disappointment of some of the older Jews. But whatever the solution, the temple was finished, and the people rejoiced at its dedication. And while we can and should rejoice at the completion of a building project, we should find much greater joy when we see the Lord using us in the building of his spiritual temple as a part of this local church. You know, there's great joy in heaven when one sinner repents. When someone gets saved, there's great joy in heaven. There should be great joy in our hearts as well. As the father of the prodigal explains to the grumbling brother, he said it was meet that we should Make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. 
Paul calls the Philippian church his joy and crown in Philippians 4.1. He says the same thing to the Thessalonians, that they were, are his joy and crown of exaltation, his glory and joy. Now I admit there can be a sense of frustration in ministry, ministry to people. You know, someone, some one pastor said the ministry wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for people. But you know what? There has can be some frustration. In fact, that a project never gets completed, or there may be setbacks. You can't just step back and say, "Oh, look at that person!" You know, complete in Christ. I can't do that for any of you this morning. I'm sorry, but you're not complete in Christ. I'm not complete in Christ. I am in position, but not in my practice. I can't say, look at this church, harmonious, mature, fruitful, the work is done. Because the work's not done. But while that's so, we can rejoice in the progress in the godliness that we see in others' lives as God uses them in the ministry. We can rejoice in that our work in the Lord is never in vain. When we glorify God by bearing much fruit, our joy will be full, as John said in John 15. But God wants us to know the joy of His providential care for us, the joy of His provision for us, the joy of productivity And then fourthly, God wants us to know the joy of praising Him. Now when I speak of praising the Lord here, I'm talking about as a body of believers, as we assemble ourselves together, as we have this morning. When the temple was completed, the people gathered, and it says in verse 16, kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. And their offerings were not nearly as grandiose, as Solomon's dedication back in 1 Kings 8, but it was a sincere offering of what they had. And concerning the sin offering, it was a confession of failure, but also of faith. There was still an atonement. There was still the covenant with the whole people. And for this, the implication of the twelve sacrifices, the appointment of the priests and the Levites to their divisions there and, and, and orders it says in verse 18 and they set priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of the of God it shows their ongoing commitment to worship God together their observation of Passover was a celebration of God's gracious salvation remember how he delivered them from slavery in Egypt The Feast of the Unleavened Bread immediately followed, symbolizing the holy fellowship of a redeemed people with their God. And for us, these feasts are put together kind of in the Lord's Supper, where we remember that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed, had been sacrificed for us. Even as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincere and heartfelt joy must accompany our praise in order for the praise to be genuine. Someone might say that as, they were be- as they're beginning their new life with God, they cannot understand the demands of the Psalms that we praise God. They don't see the point of this, perhaps. Besides, it seems to, to them to be, picture God as a craving uh, for worship like a vain person wants compliments. But that's wrong. 
wrong thinking. The most obvious fact about praise is that there's a great deal to praise God for. We don't do it enough. Just think of the joy and the blessing of breathing. Y'all breathing, aren't you? We don't think about it much, do we? But it's a wonderful blessing to breathe. Of course, the measure of health that God's given you, you may have some aches and some pains and some health issues and so forth, but I'm sure there are, there's someone somewhere suffering more than you are. I was reading this past week about a man who found out about a cancerous tumor in his spine. And after the operation, he could think clearly and he could move his fingers. That's two things he prayed for. I want my mind, Lord, and I want my fingers. And when he woke up from the, the, the surgery, he had his mind, he could think, and he could move his fingers. That was it. Are you satisfied with that? Are you praising God that you can... Think, move your fingers. He was. When I read that story, I thought about my aches and pains. You know, they're really not so bad. And I praise God for the measure of health that he's given me. And many other blessings God has blessed us with. And when praising whether of God or anything, we must realize that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. Pursuing joy in God and praising God are not separate acts. Worship is not added to joy, and joy is not a byproduct of worship. Worship is the valuing of God, and when this valuing is intense, it is joy in God. Therefore, the essence of worship is delight in God, which displays His all-satisfying value. Spontaneous praise is good when you're alone, but it's even better when you can share that experience with someone else. You know, there are times when I have seen things, maybe a beautiful scenery, like a sunset, or maybe a beautiful flower, beautiful scene, or sometimes when I'm on those walks, you know, in the most beautiful place in the community. I like to do that with other people. I don't like to necessarily do it by myself. But I have enjoyed it when I was alone, but, you know, it's better to share it with someone you know and love. You might say, wow, look at that. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, you can say that to yourself, but are you going to answer yourself? Better have that checked. You know, it's the same in worship. You know, we can worship God in the privacy of our own, our own self and our own uh, private devotions. We can worship God, but how much greater is it to worship God together with other people of like faith and practice? It's great to enjoy the beauty of the Lord in your private devotions, but it's better to join in with others and praise Him. And finally then, God wants us to know the joy of purity and obedience to him. It's stated here that Israel rebuilt the temple according to the command of God, verse 14. They organized their worship as it is written in the book of Moses, verse 18. It is stated here that the priests and the Levites were purified together. All of them were pure, verse 20. 
not only the returned exiles, but also and all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel did eat. Verse 21. And for there to be true joy in our worship, there must be holiness in our lives. You're not going to enjoy the the worship and and the the praise of God if there's sin in your life. You may be able to mouth the words, you may be able to sing the songs, but if there's sin, it's not going to be real joy. We must separate ourselves from the filthiness of the heathen or of this world. It is hypocrisy that the Lord hates if we live like the world all week and then put on a pious front to worship Him on Sundays. Contrary to popular opinion, purity of life and obedience to God do not rob us of joy. Some people say, how can you, how can you uh, be a Christian? can't have any joy anymore. Can't have any fun anymore. You see, that's where they get mixed up, don't they? Christian life's no fun because you can't do those things that you once did. Purity and obedience are at the heart of true joy. Sin gives brief pleasure and lasting scars and pain. Obedience may be difficult at the moment, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, according to Hebrews 12, 11. And so the ultimate purpose of God in all his work is to increase joy. The thought that it is bad to desire our own good and enjoy is not a part of Christian faith. Indeed, we consider the promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. You know, to many people, even so-called Christians... They're half-hearted creatures fooling around with alcohol and drugs and immorality and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the backyard because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We're far too easily pleased. God himself is the source of infinite joy. And that we should pursue joy in him with all our hearts. So I ask you this morning again, how high is the pursuit of joy on your priority list? God's aim is to give us great joy in him and his sovereign ways. Only when we have true joy in God will we glorify him as we should. This morning, are you looking for joy or are you looking for fun? Now, there's nothing wrong with some good, clean fun but it doesn't compare to the joy of the Lord. Let's pray.